I'd like for us as we begin this morning, I'd like to read a, a few verses from the 84th Psalm, beginning at um, verse 8 where we read these words. O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God, and look upon the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand outside, and I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Father, as we come to you this morning, we're just simply blessed to know that you are the author and the finisher of our faith, that you are the creator of the universe, that our lives are in your hands and not in the hands of, of anyone in this world. And Father, we know that one day you will make it all right. We're looking forward to that day as the world seems to fall into greater and greater darkness and despair. Only you, Lord, can rescue, only you can save. There are so many out there, 1.2 billion Muslims, Lord, who are totally misguided and misled, whom the enemy, the eyes of whom have been blinded by the enemy. And, oh God, I pray that you will work a mighty work amongst those people and around the world. Even this day, there will be a breakthrough in many places where men and women will be brought to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. We ask for your presence here and your enlightenment as we study your word, that we will come not only to a knowledge a greater and deeper knowledge of the truth, but application of it in our daily walk with you. It is our desire to be used of you to spread the kingdom. And Father, I pray that that will be our focus. Bless, Lord, during our time here and throughout this property this morning as the word is ministered in Christ's name. Amen. In the later years of David's reign, his son Absalom was living in self-imposed exile following the revenge assassination of his elder half-brother Amnon. And we looked at that as we studied the 13th and the first part of the 14th chapter of 2 Samuel. During the three years of the exile up in Geshur, David mourned more, it seems, over the absence of Absalom than he did over the fact that his eldest son and heir to the throne had been murdered. Joab, Joab keeps showing up, doesn't he? Uh, Joab, who is a nephew of David, younger man than David apparently, uh, was the commander of the royal army. And Joab often tries to impose his ideas on, on the way things should be run. And he has finally decided that it was time for Absalom to return. Absalom shouldn't be off in Gesher, 90 miles away to the north any more. Gesher was located immediately east of the Sea of Galilee, in what is today known, or what historically was known as Bashan, a part of which is the uh, Golan Heights today. Now Abs Absalom, it appears, would, was the next in line for the throne, so that would make him the crown prince. But he was in exile, and exile always implied disgrace. If you're in exile, that's not usually a positive thing. And Joab's concern was that if David were to die while Absalom was in exile, that maybe one of J uh, David's younger sons might, maybe one or more, might uh, challenge the throne. And this could lead to chaos, civil war, dis you know, disruption. And Joab didn't want that. 
And so his goal was to bring back Absalom so that there would be a peaceful transition of power on the hour that David died, which, of course, wasn't going to be any time soon, but you never knew. David was getting in his older years by this particular time. So the first 17 chapters, I mean verses, of the 14th chapter of 2 Samuel tell us that Joab hired a woman. This woman was from the little town of Tekoa, which was south of the city of Jerusalem. And he hired this woman to pretend to go to David and plead for help concerning a fabricated uh, story that Joab had fed to her. And, and we read that. Let me just read verses 6 and 7 again to see what this lady actually said to, to David. This is 2 Samuel chapter 14, verse 6. And your maidservant had two sons. But the two of them struggled together in the field, and there was no one to separate them. So one struck the other and killed him. Now behold, the whole family had, has risen against your maidservant, and they say, Hand over the one who struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed, and destroy the heir also. Thus they will extinguish my coal which is left, so as to leave my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. Now according to the story, she was a widow, so her husband was dead, so obviously no more sons could be born. And the one has killed the other, and now they want to kill the one for killing the other. And so here she would be without husband and without either of her sons. This is the dilemma that she uh, presented to David. Now Joab's hope was that David would clearly see in this his own picture, would see Amnon and Absalom as the two who struggled, the one killing the other, and now the one being in exile, not, not being executed, but being in exile, which as far as as the country of Israel is concerned, was, was pretty much the same thing. This was, this was the hope that Joab had. So let's pick up where we left off last week at the 18th verse of this chapter. Then the king answered and said to the woman, Please do not hide anything from me that I am about to ask you. And the woman said, Let my lord the king please speak. So the king said, Is the hand of Joab with you in all this? And the woman answered and said, As your soul lives, my lord the king, no one can turn to the right or to the left from anything that my lord the king has spoken. Indeed, it was your servant Joab who commanded me, and it was also he who put all these words in the mouth of your maidservant. In order to change the appearance of things, your servant Joab has done this thing. But my lord is wise, like the wisdom of the angel of God to know all that is in the earth. Then the king said to Joab, Behold now, I will surely do this thing. Go therefore, bring back the young man Absalom. And Joab fell on his face to the ground, prostrated himself, and blessed the king. Then Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor <clears throat> in your sight, O my lord, the king, in that the king has performed the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. However, the king said, Let him turn to his own house, let him not see my face. So Absalom turned to his own house and did not see the king's face. David was able to discern the hand of Joab when the woman made the plea for the return of Absalom. What all does that mean? Well, we certainly know probably Joab at some point in time, maybe frequently, we don't know, Joab probably made it clear to David that at least as far as his advice was worth anything, he thought that David ought to bring Absalom back. So in the back of his mind, 
David knew, apparently knew, that Joab wanted Absalom to return. But I think in here you also see the gift of discernment. Those who walk close to the Lord, those that are in His Word and seeking to walk in obedience, sometimes are gifted with the gift of discernment, meaning that you can see in, in a way behind things to the sense in, in the sense that whether good or ill is being intended by, by a certain thing which is, is occurring. I, I've heard various people claim they've had the gift of discernment and walk around blind as a bat, but I think that it truly is a gift and that all of us can have it to some measure the closer we walk with the Lord. Because remember, everything in this life involves a spiritual facet to it. We are, we are in a spiritual warfare. And so, so God does give us, through His Word, insight into the struggle that is going on. And so David understands here that Joab is behind this request. And so realizing that David has seen through her little drama, uh, the woman couches her confession that Yes, Joab has done this in highly flattering terms, as you may have noticed there. She says to uh, David, no one can hide the truth from you because you have wisdom like the wisdom of the angel of God. I mean, she's putting it on in thick layers here. Well, you know, she's kind of hung herself out here on, on Joab's behalf. I think Joab paid her very well to do this, but uh, she wants to, of course, uh, cover her self in this particular situation. Now, there, there's no evidence in this passage that David took offense at her, none whatsoever, because, you know, she's acting as, as Joab's puppet. David could have gotten angry at her, but he, there's no evidence that he does, because really she is encouraging him to do what in his heart he really already wants to do, but he's been kept from doing it by his pride and by his sense of justice. He apparently dismissed the woman and then summoned Joab. Joab, come here! <laughs> now, we don't know whether he said to Joab, are you behind this little scheme here? <laughs> Have you been putting this... There's no reference. He doesn't say... The Scripture doesn't tell us that he said anything to Joab about it. I have a hard time believing he didn't. But the Scripture doesn't say that he did. But what his response is was to give Joab permission to recall Absalom. In other words, Joab, your, your little game worked. Go get Absalom. Well, what is very, very striking about this passage to me is verse 22. Because what we read in verse 22 is very uncharacteristic of Joab. And it is very melodramatic. It says, And then Joab fell on his face to the ground, prostrated himself, and blessed the king. And he said, Today your servant knows I have found favor in your sight, O my lord the king, in that the king has performed the request of his servant. You remember Joab from past. <laughs> That's not how Joab functions. You know, Joab's a tough guy, and he doesn't yield uh, too much to anyone else. But ever since the murder of Ahab, when he murdered Ahab, he was, he recognized that he was no longer in really, really in David's good graces. He knew that David tolerated him because he was very capable as commander of the army and, and David kept him in that position, but he felt like he had lost the real trust of David and, and for good reason. The fact that Joab had been the first to really know the extent of David's sin involving Bathsheba and the fact that he, in a way, 
was implicated in the death of Uriah because Joab was the one to order the attack. Joab was the one who told the men to, to leave Uriah standing alone. So really Joab is implicated in this. But of course he could do exactly what the, the leaders of the Nazis said at the Nuremberg trial. They were just doing what they were ordered to do. You know, they were doing what they were told. And so obviously if anybody questioned Joab, I could say, well, I was just commanded by the king to do this. It's not my fault. Well, the, all of that implication, you see, there with David kept him really on, on, the, on David's bad side. Most of us do like, like being indebted to someone, whether it's financially in debt or emotionally in debt or in some other way in debt. We don't like that. And often when we're indebted to someone, <clears throat> that person doesn't stand in high favor with us. It's a human trait. So when David agreed to his desire and his plan to bring, to bring Absalom, Joab is almost flabbergasted and he fawns all over David. You know, slobbers all over him here. And in fact, it turns out even better than Joab had planned because David not only says, yes, you know, bring Absalom back, but he says, you go get him. You get to go and you get to break the news to him. You get to bring him back. You get to, and of course, Joab would use the whole time to ingratiate himself with, with Absalom. Because if Absalom's going to be the next king, Joab wanted to be viewed in a very, uh, you know, positive manner by Absalom. And so this would give him the whole trip back to lay it on thick on, um, on Absalom. I think Joab went immediately to begin to make preparations for this journey. You know, he didn't just hop on his horse and take off for Gesher. He didn't go alone, certainly. He's the commander of the army. He undoubtedly took a detachment with him. Because remember, Gesher is within the Davidic Empire. So the king of Gesher is, is not only David's father-in-law, but he's uh, obliged to David. There's kind of a feudalistic relationship going on here. David rules this empire that goes all the way to the Euphrates River and Gesher is one of the kingdoms within it. The kingdom of Gesher is not Israeli though, it is Aramean, but they owe their allegiance to Israel. And so, you know, he's not going to go up there all by himself uh, to, in effect, a, a feudal kingdom. And so he goes with a detachment of the military most certainly. The distance from Jerusalem to Gesher is about 90 miles. So we're talking about maybe two to three days, depending on how big a hurry it was, to get there. We're talking about two, three, four, five days. We don't know a protocol of, uh, of the uh, king of Gesher whining and dining, the commander of the royal army, and, and all the other things, you know, just walk in and say, give me Absalom, I'm leaving kind of deal. You, you had to go through all the protocol of that particular day. And then, of course, two to three days coming back. So we're looking at at least a week, maybe 10 days, he had to prepare for. So that took him a little while to make preparations. When he brought Absalom back, and that's kind of all squished together, it's telescoped together in Scripture. The details of the journey are not given. The details of of Joab's arrival are not given. None of that is given. All we're told is that when he got back, David refused to see Absalom. David had relented in allowing Absalom to return, but he was not yet ready to let bygones be bygones. Absalom was still in disgrace in David's eyes, and David's refusal to allow Absalom to again attend the royal court had a very specific point to it. And that was to make it very clear 
that Absalom possessed no power within the kingdom. He may not be an exile in Gesher, but he's in effect ostracized to some corner of the royal precinct. And he was not allowed into the halls of power. That, that's, a, that's a powerful statement. Matthew Henry, who uh, is a very interesting commentator, very different from many of our modern commentators, uh, he states that David put Absalom under this interdict first for his own honor, David's own honor, that he might not seem to forgive him too easily. I mean, after all, he had murdered his brother, David's eldest son. And it didn't, nobody, he, David didn't want to be viewed as, as just being a pushover, even though he was with his sons. He didn't want to be viewed as just letting him come back too easily. And then secondly, he says, for Absalom's greater humiliation. Absalom needed a good dose of humiliation, as we'll discover as we move along here. So Absalom has returned. He is in Jerusalem, but he is not in the halls of power. He is not standing alongside his father, being prepared for the throne of Israel. Reminds me of Victoria when she was queen of England. She did not prepare her eldest son Edward to be king. I don't know if she thought she was going to live forever or what, but uh, she did not prepare her son to, to be king. And although when he became king, he did a reasonable, reasonable job, it wasn't because his mother had uh, you know, taught him how to, to be a good king. Well, let's, let's read on and see what happens uh, next here. Verse 25. Now in all Israel was no one as handsome as Absalom, so highly praised. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no defect in him. And when he cut his hair of his head, and it was at the end of every year that he cut it, <laughs> sounded like shearing a sheep, I guess, for it was heavy on him so that he cut it, his hair weighed, the hair of his head weighed 200 shekels by the king's weight. And to Absalom there were born three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar, and she was a woman of beautiful appearance. Now Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem and did not see the king's face. Then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but he would not come to him. So he sent again a second time, but he would not come. Therefore he said to his servants, See, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and came to Absalom at his house and said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent for you, saying, Come here, that I may send you to the king to say, Why have I come from Gesher? It would have been better for me to still be there. Now, therefore, let me see the king's face, and if there is iniquity in me, let him put me to death. So when Joab came to the king and told him, he called for Absalom. Thus he came to the king and prostrated himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. In the first three verses here of this passage, we have a little vignette about this man, Absalom. We find him described as handsome and physically flawless. No airbrushing needed. A virtual Adonis. Notice, notice that the ancient Israelites were no better than our starstruck society. You know, running over all these expectations for kingship does not necessarily guarantee statesmanship. In fact, 
Look at the people who in our society were highly praised for their physical attractiveness. What do we discover? In almost every case they become so arrogant and so self-absorbed they couldn't possibly fit into a position such as the kingship or queenship where you're supposed to be a servant and a selfless person ministering to the people of your country. Now, of course, most kings and queens have not fit that role very well at all. Obviously, the most outstanding example that usually comes to most people's mind uh, is Louis XIV of France, who not only didn't view himself as a servant of the people, he viewed himself as one step below God relative to his people. And how many kings and three queens in history, how many empires uh, did the ruler view himself ruling by divine right or actually being a divinity himself? You know, the, the Aztec emperors were, were actual gods. The Egyptian pharaohs were the, the sons of, of Horus, the sons of Amun. You, I mean, you go down through the pages of history and, and this is what you find. So, in many ways, Absalom would just fit right into that mold very well. Ironically, Absalom's hair, which was considered to be one of his most outstanding features, would one day, in the end, become his undoing, would it not? We were told that in his annual visit to the barber, <laughs> annual visit uh, to the barber, uh, that the hair removed weighed 200 shekels. Now the standard royal shekel, as best as we can determine it from that day and age, weighed what we would call 11 grams today. So 200 times 11 grams, you're going to discover four pounds four pounds of hair cut off this guy's head. Now, I don't know about you, but it would take quite a few years to get four pounds off of my head. In fact, I'm not sure if I've had four pounds in my whole life. But, I mean, just think of it. No wonder he, it was heavy on him, you know. Four pounds seems to be a lot of hair. Now, we, we have to remember that uh, the shekel was a measure of weight. A weight that, of course, can be translated into a currency, but it cannot be viewed as a coin. There were no coins in those days. The coin was not invented until the 7th century BC. So anybody who tries to sell you a coin from the 10th century, which says on it 10th century BC, um, <laughs> be concerned <laughs> that it might not be genuine. The Lydians, who were a people who lived in Western Asia Minor and were really highly admired by the Greeks, the Greeks say that the Lydians are the first to invent the coin. And so, obviously we're talking about a unit of weight. Um, probably they, it was, it, uh, the money was transferred in little ingots and maybe in a granular form of, of gold and silver, but not in coin form at this time. Today, of course, if you go to Israel, there are shekels. They're both paper and they are coins. Not worth much. It's very interesting to note that if a man's children are named in Scripture, 99 times out of 100, it's his sons that are named and not his daughters. Sometimes a daughter is named if she is going to play a very important role in some event that transpires. Remember Jacob. Jacob had certainly many daughters, but only one is named, and that's Dinah because of what happened uh, with her. Usually they're named for things that, are, that happen aren't really very good, like Tamar. 
uh, David's uh, daughter in the 13th chapter of uh, 2 Samuel. In this passage, we find that Absalom's sons are not named, but his daughter is named. Her name is Tamar. Now, it's possible that his sons had died and were no longer alive, and, and only his daughter was alive, but, but that's very unlikely. What's very interesting is this Scripture has not even told us that, that uh, Absalom has gotten married. Notice how many things Scripture is silent on. Scripture is not giving to us an intimate biography of all these people. The scripture is there to teach us the truths that will help us to understand how we need to live life. And so here we have his daughter being named, but not his sons. It appears that the girl is named primarily because she is named for her aunt, Tamar. She has the same name, which is palm tree. And Tamar, of course, Absalom's sister, full-blooded sister, was the victim in the 13th chapter and, of course, becomes a very sad person in the history of, of Scripture. Like her aunt, Absalom's daughter is described as being a very beautiful woman. Now, why is all this brought out? It seems that the references to the extraordinary beauty, physical beauty, of Absalom, of his sister Tamar, and now of his daughter, Tamar, are put there to warn us against putting stock in physical appearance. More often than not, uncommon physical beauty is a curse and not a blessing. Although not explicitly stated, I think that physical beauty is kind of involved as well as other things in that well-known passage in 1 Corinthians, the first chapter, I'd like to read a few verses from there. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning at verse 26. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, and I think you could put in there not many beautiful, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, the base things of the world, and the despised, which, of course, would include people of uncommonly less than beautiful appearance, that he might nullify the things that are, that no man should boast before God. But by his doing, you're in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. For it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And how can that be? If we're boasting in our wealth, if we're boasting in our power, if we're boasting in our brilliance, if we're boasting in our beauty, how can we boast in the Lord? I mean, many have said, why should I give God honor? I earned my money. I have this beauty. You know, da, da, da. And, of course, that is the great pain. That is the image of the enemy. The enemy is the great I. You know, me. Look at me. And it's really, it's a profound curse. And all you have to do is, is look at the biographies of the lives of some of the most beautiful people down through history, and you find the greatest tragedies that have ever been written. People as lost as lost can be. Every once in a while, of course, one does come to know the Lord, and, and we can be really thankful for that. 
but those who usually are outstanding because of some prowess or other, that is a big chain, a ball and chain that tends to hinder them from coming to the Lord because when we come to the Lord, we have to acknowledge that we are nothing and that He is everything. As, as John the Baptist said, He must increase and I must decrease. We have to view ourselves as not being worthy of His mercy and of His grace because grace is not grace if we're worthy of it, as you've heard in the sermons. Grace is a gift that comes to us from God. It has nothing to do with what we do, who we are, how hard we strive, or anything else. It's God's gift. And the problem is if we have too many of this world's things that, that people look up to, it, it tends to keep us back. It helps, it makes, causes us to feel that we are worthy of whatever we get. And of course, as we see, for Tamar it was a tragedy, for Absalom it will be a tragedy, and fortunately uh, we don't hear anything bad about uh, Absalom's daughter Tamar, so hopefully maybe she was able to contain it and, and nothing bad happened to her, we can hope. We can only speculate, though, about that. But we find, though, is, is Absalom is just boiling. Uh, you know, he, he's, he, he views himself as worthy of being king. He's handsome. He's, he thinks he's, uh, he's intelligent. And, and, and he's been more wise than his father David because at least he dealt with the problem that David didn't deal with. So after two years of living in Jerusalem estranged from his father, Absalom decides it's time to get reconciled with David, his father. And verses 28 to 33 describe Absalom's desperation. It had been five years, five years since he had run to Geshur and been there for three years, come to Jerusalem and been ostracized to the corner of the, the palace grounds for another two years and he had not even seen the face of his father. He was ambitious. He wanted the throne and there was only one way to get the throne and that's get back to the center of power, get back into the limelight. And says Joab had been instrumental in bringing him back from Geshur in the first place. Absalom naturally thought it would be Joab who would be the most likely person to heal the remaining difference there, to, to get David to agree to bring Absalom back into the palace and let him stand by his side because you remember earlier we were told that it was the sons of David who were his counselors. Not alone, but he had, David had other counselors, as we'll discover. But, but at least that was their job, to serve alongside their father. And, of course, the main purpose was to learn the job of what it meant to rule a kingdom, rule an empire. But he wasn't. He was, he was five years out of, out of the center of power. And for a man with ambitions, he couldn't tolerate that any longer. He'd twice been frustrated when he called Joab and said, Joab, come to me. I want you to go to my father and I want you to pave the way for reconciliation. And Joab had ignored him. Twice Joab had ignored him. And why? Why did Joab do that? I mean, Joab had brought him here. Joab had wanted to see reconciliation. Why, why, had Joab, why did Joab ignore Absalom's pleas? Well, first of all, I think Joab, he, Joab was an arrogant man himself, and, and he was very independent. And he didn't, want to be a, he didn't want to appear to be Absalom's lackey. Every time Absalom whistled, he hopped. After all, Ahab, I mean, uh, yeah, Ahab, Joab, Absalom, Amnon, 
<laughs> we'll just call him Bob. <laughs> um, Absalom wasn't yet king. David was king. And if he was over there talking with, with Absalom uh, quietly over here, David might assume that he was conniving with him. And so Joab was just making sure that he was in good graces here. He, he knew when the time would be right. But Absalom, in his frustration, decided now was the time. I need Joab to come to me now, and I'm not waiting any longer. And so he took the extreme act action of torching Joab's field. Now, the fact that Absalom had a field and Joab had a field tells us what? That it wasn't terribly profitable to be the commander of the royal army or to be a royal prince. You still had to invest. You still had to have your own income. You still had to have, you know, Absalom was shearing sheep. Absalom has a field of barley. Joab has a field of barley. So, obviously, you're supplementing your income here, uh, trying to uh, you know, make ends meet, so to speak. So, we're not dealing with a state that has yet developed to the place where you have this, this, this tremendous royal revenue pouring in from every corner of the empire. Certainly, it will come. It will come when David starts accruing everything for the purposes of building the temple. But it isn't, hasn't happened yet. And so, that prepares the background for the scenario that we read. Well, we don't have time to pursue that. There is a real complication here with torching somebody's field, <laughs> which we'll talk about next time. And also we're going to see how David actually is partially responsible for this problem here because partial forgiveness is a no-no. <laughs> you either forgive or you don't forgive. And of course, from God's perspective, you forgive. And David has not done that. And so he is engendering this situation, which will prove to be a very negative thing very soon as Absalom strikes out on his own.